0: It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. But for today's guest, it's about both. Laura Langdon is a developer advocate who has the pleasure of combining her explorations and experience in theatre, computer science, mathematics, education, and data science into a role that rolls all of that into one perfect package. Join us as we speak about Laura's experience in education and the beauty of the interconnectedness of seemingly disparate things. I'm Michelle Ong. And this is STEAM Powered. Good evening, Laura. Thank you so much for joining me today on STEAM Powered. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you today about your journey.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I've been looking forward to talking to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you've had an interesting journey from what you've told me. And one of the (laughs) first things that you, well, one of the first things that I'd like to bring up is the fact that, you know, you said you started college at 15. So does that mean you skipped a few years at school?
1: Um, No, it means I opted out of finishing high school. I left high school and went to college instead. We have a system in California called the community college system, which is pretty common in the States and maybe Canada. California's system is a little bit different in the sense that our community colleges are not primarily vocational programs or what some places call technical programs and and that kind of thing. They are feeders for the California State University and the University of California which combined is most of a hundred campuses, actually. Because California is huge. And so so going to a community college in California doesn't mean the same thing as it, as it means in lots of other places in terms of like the kinds of classes that you take there and so on.
0: Cool. So you opted up because you felt like it wasn't really for you anymore for high school and you just wanted to get straight into the college and focus your programs? Um,
1: <laughs> it sort of did turn out that way. The, the original impetus was that I had a fainting disorder and I kept passing out. And eventually my high school, it was fairly disruptive because the policy was they had to call an ambulance every time. And that meant that the ambulance crew would like empty out whatever room I was in and so on. And so it was it was disruptive for the school. And so after that had happened a few times, they asked me to maybe please not come back and to like stay conscious. <laughs> That, um, that's that's not and, exactly how it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um It ended up kind of being that way, though, because it turned out that I didn't faint anymore once I wasn't there. Oh, that's interesting. so. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> I mean, almost. I I didn't faint unpredictably. I still faint potentially for blood draws. If I have a blood draw and blood drawn when I haven't eaten. Then I know I'll faint, but I know it's going to happen. I can faint sitting down without like falling out of the chair now. I'm fairly good at it. But the unpredictable like random fainting didn't happen anymore. Wow. After I left. Um, and I was perfectly happy to not be there. And yeah. I was dual enrolled for a little while in an independent study program, which was still through the local school district because they couldn't legally... The school district couldn't say, we are not going to provide you with an education because you have a fainting disorder. And so this is what they do instead. And I was dual enrolled there and at the community college. And I liked college way better than I liked any kind of high school, including independent study. And so I took what's called the California Proficiency Test, which is sort of like the GED. I don't know if you've heard of it in the States. It's like a leaving exam that you take if you're not actually enrolled in high school anymore say and this is this one is only recognized actually in the state of california and i said okay bye (laughs) quite reasonably so i think too (laughs) i just I, i was much happier there i joined you know student government i was elected as the student representative to the board of trustees when i was 16 and it was just a much better it was a better fit yeah, absolutely. So, what about college was actually the better fit? In college, there's less busy work, less. I mean, especially you know, students usually know when what they're being given to do is busy work, and <sighs> so there's this this tension of like, I know that this is nonsense you know that this is nonsense. And we're both like going through this, I'm going to do this assignment, you're going to grade it, we're all going to hate it. So why are we doing this? I mean, not that everything that happens in in high schools. And I had some teachers who were really, really excellent, and and it wasn't busy work. But there was just a lot less of that in college, a lot more treating you like a whole human, in a sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. And also because I guess if you're doing more focused studies as opposed to generalized studies, it feels like there's a bit more purpose as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. And you, you get to choose. You don't. It's not handed down to you. You get to choose your classes each semester and so on, which was super fun for me. So I have ADHD. It was not yet diagnosed. I was not diagnosed until I was in my 30s. But it was great because I got to try. I majored in about nine different things over the course of several years. So even though I started college early, I didn't actually finish my bachelor's degree until I was 30. Ah. But that was because I ended up having a, a long pause early on. I had two babies. Yes. And so then I came back to it. But the switching the majors a lot of times <laughs> definitely <laughs> slowed me down. But I don't I don't think of that as a problem. It was a feature, not a bug.
0: <laughs> it's a good way of looking at it as well. And I guess it's come up for quite a few times where people are saying, well, when you actually go to university or college, you're being asked to make a fairly big choice about what you want to do at a time when you're still trying to figure out who you are and what you want to do right. with your life. Right. So, you know, for some people, they have that very clearly in their mind and that's awesome. But for some other mm-hmm. people, it's like, no, I want to explore things. I want to try stuff out and, figure out whether this is for me or not because this Mm -hmm. is what I'll be committing a lot of my time to doing in the future. Right. So it's quite reasonable to explore stuff. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, yeah, so when you were going through that process of exploration, what kind of, I guess, thought process did you have in terms of what you were looking for, I guess, more in terms of fulfillment?
1: I was always convinced that whatever I had just decided – was my thing was going to be my thing forever. I didn't get the hang of that <laughs> not being true <laughs> for some years. There's also the prefrontal cortex doesn't finish, you know, baking until you're 25 and in fact, I was 25 when I picked no, I was 26 when I picked finally picked my eventual major that I that I stuck with and I never I never looked back. At that point. And then I ended up being a professor and so I observed a lot of students. And my so-called returning students, the students who were not 18, they were in their late 20s or 30s or 40s. I had a student in her late 60s. They thrived academically in a way that most of my 18, 19, 20-year-old students did not. Even my students who were getting excellent grades, most of them were not thriving academically. Like They weren't loving the academic part. They were doing what they needed to do, but they were thriving as 18, 19, 20-year-olds, which is biologically and neurologically appropriate, I think. And so I, I think that especially uh, now that, you know, we live longer as humans and we have different sort of expectations. And we don't, I think we don't need to carry on with this model that we made up. I mean, all of these things are structures that we made up. And we made up this idea that college or university happens when you're 18 until you're 22 or 23 or whatever, and then you get a job and all of that. We don't actually have to do that. It's not a rule. And I think that for most people, it's not developmentally appropriate.
0: We don't have to be in that big of a hurry. I think that's quite reasonable. And there's so many people we know now who, you know, have gone and come back or they explore other things and they'll try other stuff. And so commonly people have career changes because of the same sorts of reasons why, you know, we will return to edu- higher education or other sorts of training or learning experiences mm-hmm. because we're developing as human beings as we grow and gain more experiences, mm-hmm. understand more about what we want to do with ourselves. Right. And we do have this structure which is very, you know, you have to go to school, you have to go to university, and then you get a job. And in some other countries, the UK and Australia, a bit less, they encourage a gap year where they, or I don't know if they still encourage it, but, you know, they like people to explore that idea. Where Mm -hmm. You take a year off between high school and university, do some stuff, hopefully something productive for you rather Mm -hmm. than nothing, Mm -hmm. just to find out more about where you want to be and who you want to be. And I think you're still young at that point, Mm -hmm. but at least you've had the opportunity to explore that. Right. And I think that is quite important.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, So I'm I'm all for the gap year. I'm for the gap seven years. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm not Mormon. I'm very far from it. But I think that they had a brilliant idea with the missions. So you take these, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds and you send them off to go make themselves useful. And their paradigm of what's useful to have these young people doing is not one that I share. But I wish that you could just have sent them to the kids to join the Peace Corps. I actually looked into it for my own kids. It turns out oh, that wow. to join the Peace Corps, they want you to have a bachelor's degree.
0: Ah. And I'm like, guys, Interesting. <laughs> you're harshing <Yes>. my vibe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is a good idea, though, getting the opportunity to do all of these sorts of things beforehand, getting more world experience. Mm-hmm. And I've tutored at uni before, and, you know, I was a uni student before. Sure. And some of the students, they approach the classes in a different way to the ones who haven't travelled, the ones who haven't had a broader board experience base, mm-hmm. approach their studies in a different way to the ones who have. Sure. And it's an interesting way of looking at How they feel about purpose and how they feel about function because they've had a bit of a glimpse at what it's like outside of their usual bubble.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So, how did you come to settle on mathematics after your various explorations?
1: The major that I thought that I had settled on and the one that I had stuck with for a couple of years was computer science because my best friend had been studying for the LSAT, which is the exam you take to go to law school and Mm -hmm. I was just hanging out with her once while she was studying and she was working on some logic problems and I just started doing them along with her just something to do and I loved them and was successful with them and her boyfriend at the time was a software developer and she said hey you know boyfriend is also you know really into these and you should maybe look at computer science because that's what computer science really is, fundamentally. It's logic problems. And I was not particularly interested at that moment. But then about a year and a half later, I had these babies. And I suddenly had you know to figure out something to do with my career that had a chance of supporting my family. And the last major that I had chosen before that was fashion design. Actually, the last one before it was Italian studies. So sort of even, even less likely to be lucrative. And so so that's, I just thought, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what I'll do then. So that's what I did. And so then I was taking math classes for my computer science major. And I took algebra through a course at the community college that was self-paced and self-taught. And so it was just you in a book and you Determined how much, which problems you were going to practice and how many you were going to practice. And then when you felt like you were ready to take the exam for that chapter, you would go tell the instructor, hey, I need to take this exam. And if you had questions along the way, you could ask the instructor, but otherwise you were just left to your own devices. And those courses actually had a very high failure rate. I found out later when I was an instructor and had friends who taught at the same community college. It's like a 75 to 80% failure rate. But for me, it was perfect because something that I had always disliked about math in the way that it was taught, I didn't re- recognize it as a pedagogical objection that I had, but I just knew it as, you know, here's here's a tool and here's ha- a bunch of abstract instances of you using this tool to put some numbers in, do some things, and more numbers come out. Yay. And then maybe there's some word problems at the end, which were my favorite. I loved the word problems. And then you move on. But I would never remember rules like exponent rules or whatever. But in the self-paced, self-taught program, I had the space and time to understand why. Like, why is it the case that x cubed times x squared is x to the fifth? and not x to the sixth like when do you multiply them and when do you add them why does this make sense and it turned out that it was (laughs) its whole logic all the way down just like the computer science (laughs) and it turned out that what I really liked was the theory and like proving the rules and and so on and so I ended up being a pure math major and when I finally got to a calculus class I was still a computer science major at the time and I don't know if you've taken calculus, but there was this, Not for a while. this moment <laughs> <laughs> um, when it was suddenly like all of the content of the 12 preceding years of, of math education, it was like it was all coming to bear in a single instance. And it was like arriving somewhere, like being on a really long journey and arriving somewhere and saying, oh, this was where we were going. If you had told me that this was where we were going all along, it would have been easier to understand why we turned left there instead of right and why these things happened. And like my mental model of how everything fit together would have been so much better if I had known where we were going with this. And in that moment, I just thought, oh, God, I need to change my major. I'm going to have to be a math major now because I'm going to have to fix math education And, (laughs) and uh, so I switched, I switched majors that day. And then the common core standards were adopted in California. They had already been adopted in some of the other states. And I loved the standards. And basically, it was making all of the changes that I felt needed to be made. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess I don't have to do that now. So, okay, cool. (laughs) I wonder what I'll do instead. But I was already, I loved, I loved the proofs so much. And I had taken classes like graph theory and and the proofs in graph theory are different from the proofs in like numerical analysis and real analysis and so on. Where instead of just being like a long series of equations that prove that something is, is true, which is cool too. But these were like narratives. It was paragraphs, and I loved it. So I ended up, I I liked to say to my students that I liked my math with as few numbers as possible. Yeah. I also I loved mathematical logic. That was just fantastic, and that was no numbers, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and then I I thought I might get a doctorate in mathematical logic, and I talked to my mathematical logic professor about it, and she said, do not do that. even though that was what she had done. But she said, because you can get the doctorate in it and then no one will hire you because that's not where the research money is right now. Yeah. And you have to consider those things, like that that a university would be wanting you to bring in grants. And so that means that your area of research has to be what people are interested in funding. And she said, so don't do that do ai because that is the application of mathematical logic that's the sort of the closest thing and that gets funding <laughs> Yes, <laughs> And I thought, oh, well, sure. that's very nice, Dr. Han, but I really just wanted to do, do the math. But then a couple of years later, when I had realized that I didn't have time to do a PhD, I did a master's, but I just didn't have time to do a PhD because I really needed to get a proper job. So I thought, okay, well, I'll put that on the shelf and I'll just be an adjunct math professor. And then I found out what adjunct professors earn, which I had honestly never thought to ask, which was ridiculously naive, but I just assumed because I had lots of professors who were adjuncts, and I just assumed that they were making a living wage because otherwise, why would they do this job? (laughs) And it turned out that that was a faulty assumption. And then I found out what the associate tenure track professors were earning, which was still half of what is actually considered the poverty line in Alameda County just the county in which I live and I'm just like okay <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just gonna have to get out of academia altogether
0: yeah that it is a very very tough choice but you know a lot of people underestimate the value of using salary as criteria for choosing where you're going to go and what you're going to do And there are a few academics I've spoken to who have said that they've gotten out of academia purely, well, not purely, but because they'd have to work multiple jobs in order to have, you know, a a way to live comfortably. Mm -hmm. And that's not viable and that's not practical. And then once you, you know, if you decide to factor kids into the equation later on, even less practical. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, never underestimate looking at a salary to make your choices.
1: (laughs) Right, right, yeah more fool me <laughs> exactly but you know you you know now <laughs> I, do. I do and now I told my students when I knew that it was my last day teaching I was actually teaching students who were future teachers and in the last 15 minutes I said okay y'all did you know that salaries for public employees are also public information did you know that this is the link where you can find out what you would actually earn as a teacher? And I had three of them tell me on the spot, oh, I'm going to have to do something else then. Because
0: they also assumed that teachers made a living wage. And it's one of those problems where they're talking right now about teacher shortages. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, this isn't helping the situation either if you're not paying them to do all this amazing work of cultivating the future generation. Exactly. Exactly you know, they need to be able to survive as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what is it teaching the future generation? That teaching
1: is, I mean, there's. it's not an accident that it's referred to as a vocation, which is like priests and nuns and monks and whatever, <laughs> you know, who actually take vows of poverty. And the folks, uh, the professors that I know, they are married to people who earn more money than they do and that's that's how it has to go and I just decided that I couldn't be part of a system that shuts out people who don't have a partner who earns you know enough to make up for the fact that they don't or can't work multiple jobs and things like that because this is this is an inclusion issue
0: yeah and it affects quite a few other occupations as well Another guest was speaking about how she was involved in areas of social work and spaces where the whole point of the job is making sure that other people are cared for. They depend a lot on volunteers and they depend on a lot of women who are the ones doing the work who have husbands who can support them because they know they can't pay the women Mm -hmm. to do this kind of work. And like that's subtly exploitive because you mm-hmm. don't realize until you enter that space that this is kind of how it's working. But yeah, we'll leave it at the fact that it, some of these areas are quite exploitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, getting back to the pedagogical stuff, because I found that really interesting because some of my friends who have gone into pure math said, you know, you don't understand when you're at school because the math they teach you there is really boring and it's hard to understand, and you're not often given the space to understand it. Right. But once they discovered pure math, they went, "Why didn't they tell us this before? This is this exactly. is the good stuff. You know, we're getting shortchanged here. Right. This is the amazing bit. Mm-hmm. And it is about the way they teach it because I also remember I I was terrible at calculus, mm. and it was not helped by the fact that I had a teacher who told me that I needed a miracle to pass rather than helping me get the resources to learn. Lovely. And I had to do a bridging course to do computer science in calculus Mm -hmm. to support the fact that I did so poorly in high school. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being the person some of my peers came to to help study because I understood material better than they did at that point. Because oh. I was then in a space where I actually felt comfortable with the material. And mm-hmm. it's the stuff that I failed miserably when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I couldn't do it now. It's been too long. But just reflecting on that time when I was in that space where my classmates were saying, can you help me with this? And I could. It's like, there's clearly something amiss here. Yep. <laughs> something has changed in the way that the material has been presented to me. Mm-hmm. And it makes more sense than it did before. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it definitely is a case of some people, yes, aren't very good at the thing, but at the same time, maybe you're not being given the material in a way that works best for you. And if you don't want to quit, find a different resource to help you out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the big things people need to learn at school and university, especially with hard content.
1: Right. And, I mean, even, even being aware that other resources exist That there are different ways of presenting the same sort of the same material. You can think of it in so many different ways. Yeah. That's
0: that's a big one. It is. And I mean, hopefully now. It's a lot easier to do that and get access to that kind of thing than it was when I was at school.
1: (laughs) I think it is, but I think that it's also easier to get access to crutches that feel like they're helping and maybe they are depending on your goals but you know it's very easy to go online and get something to solve your exam mm-hmm. for you but they're not helping you understand what the why and, and so on and so that even as a former professor you know if if this course is just a GE course and you just need to pass this class and you're not going to use this material in your next classes, then I feel like it's sort of up to you to decide what you want to get out of the course. You know, if, if you just have to take this course and you would not choose to take this course, then, you know, maybe. <laughs> it didn't hurt my feelings when students were saying, you know, this is I, I would not be in this course if I had a choice. <laughs> I understand. I will try, I will try to make this as pleasant an experience as I can.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes that's just the case because of the way courses are designed. And I know in some cases where, you know, there are core units that have to be taken. You can ask if you can Mm -hmm. draw the credit from somewhere else that can be considered equivalent without doing that specific course, because realistically, you're not always going to need all of those core units for what you want to do especially these days the way the fields and the courses are a little bit more flexible than they used to be. So, yeah, it's always worth asking the course advisor what your options are and whether there is something else that you can do or if there's another way that you can take the course that's more suited to the way that you want to learn.
1: In my dream world, there wouldn't be a discrete well, the discrete math is a course, but I, I mean, it's a, in like a separate math course, necessarily, for the kinds of math that gets used in physics and chemistry and engineering and all of those places where you're using arithmetic directly to solve your physics problems or or whatever, that the math would just be taught in the moment. You know, so here's a problem. We can try all of the tools that we already have to solve this problem. We're going to run out of tools. And then we can say, okay, I think we need a new tool. And that is the moment to introduce the derivative. (laughs) You know, for instance, because like, (laughs) oh, well, just taking these averages over and over and over again, that's getting pretty tedious. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just do this once? And oh, guess what? We can.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And you're turning into an applied mathematic lesson as opposed to literally a more theoretical kind of things like you're learning this for the sake of learning this, but we can't give you a real explanation for why you'd be using this in terms of what you're doing right now.
1: Right. right. Yeah. I mean, and I'm all for the theoretical yes. math. That was that was the part that I liked. So I'm, yeah. I'm certainly not opposed to teaching it. But it has a place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that people could get a lot more out of it if it, if, I mean, I think that a lot of subjects should be more
0: integrated. Yes. And, you know, yeah. with the fact that we're getting so much multidis now, it, it really is leading that way anyway, where we're all starting to be able to see that when we're doing one particular thing, it covers whole different areas of study. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is where we can pull from each one of these different areas, the bits that we need to be able to achieve that particular objective, rather than mm-hmm. saying, right, you're studying this, and then you're studying this, and you're studying this, and there's no context for it. Yeah. Ah, So many things to do to pedagogy. (laughs) So rewind a bit more because you mentioned kids and you also Mm -hmm. said that you homeschooled your kids while you were doing your undergraduate and graduate studies. And I cannot imagine many people choosing to do that while they're doing (laughs) tertiary education because it's a lot. Both things are a whole lot of work. So what motivated you to do that? (laughs)
1: Uh, Well, so when I was 15 and I left high school, I made a commitment that I was going to homeschool my my future children because public education had not worked for me and I had no expectation that it would work better for my kids. And I also felt like (sighs) this sounds arrogant and I, I don't mean it this way, but a lot of what we did in school was too easy for me and so i didn't learn how to do hard things until i was doing them as an adult and it counted for more and so i wanted my kids to have the experience of encountering hard material you know from from the beginning and learning how to, how to deal with it. You know, you don't have to run away. Just because something is hard does not mean that it's not the thing that you should be working on. And that's a very natural instinct, and it's hard to overcome.
0: Yes. And it's, it's one of those things where, for you specifically, a more tailored educational program would have been far more suited to you because, of that. mm-hmm. because that's just the way that your brain worked. And that's the right. way that you preferred to experience learning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're still at that point where traditional learning systems are still traditional learning systems that are cookie cutter. And things are being done now to accommodate that because we are learning that people thrive in different environments a bit more. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to be able to figure out how to balance the resources because, as we said, teachers are not earning a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. And also being able to provide that tailored support at the same time and trying to find some sort of happy medium where you can give the st- students opportunities to thrive within that structured environment and giving the ones who need a little bit more, and a little bit less the support they need to be able to do that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a process. And from some of the teachers I've spoken to, it, it, it's making progress and they're actually getting to a point where they're starting to be able to do that. And provide enrichment for students in those environments. So, you know, this learning environment that you hope for is definitely coming. (laughs) It's going to take a bit more time.
1: (laughs) It's sort of funny because it's actually the Montessori model. The way that I approached homeschooling with my kids was based on, I, I read Maria Montessori's books and I read lots and lots of books about the Montessori method and employed that philosophy. So it's sort of funny to say like, it's coming because it's been here for over a century. Yes. <laughs> we've actually known- but it hasn't
0: been integrated.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. We've actually known how, I mean, there are lots and lots of other methods, like Reggio Emilia. funny, they're both Italian, but it was already known and it's also odd now that we think of, especially in the States, of Montessori education as private education. Like it's something that you can do if you have money. And when Maria Montessori developed her methods, she was working in the children's house, and that was for poor children. So all of these methods were actually developed for, I think that they work really well for most children, but the audience for which they were designed <laughs> was actually poor kids. And so it's not the case that there's something inherent about a Montessori education that is like, I've heard people say, you know, oh, The Montessori method works well because of selection bias, essentially. Like the kids who are attending Montessori schools already have access to a lot of the best resources anyway. They are probably not hungry. They have all of their, you know, physical needs met and so on. And so that's why kids who graduate from Montessori schools are often quite successful academically.
0: Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of factors there that will contribute mm-hmm. to success and failure in that case. Because mm-hmm. the things that they listed, yeah, absolutely. Oh, for sure. There are definitely students in the public system where if they had those base needs met, they would do a lot better too, because you know, base needs need to be met. But, you know, you have to think about all the other things as well. And mm-hmm. They're applicable in both systems. It's just Mm -hmm. that some kids do fare better in one than the other. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, it, again, it's giving people the opportunity to explore which one is the one that Mm -hmm. suits them and suits their needs and their environment and their situation. Yeah. In
1: Amsterdam, parents can choose which schools to send their children to. And there are public Montessori schools. In fact, one of them is is the school that Anne Frank went to before she went back to to Germany. And that's so interesting to me that you can have that freedom to choose a public Montessori education or you can choose a different style because this is what works better for your kid. And that's just
0: so perfect. To me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In some cases, it's grass is greener. In the other case, it is really about the fact that all the systems in different countries are run the way they are because of all these other factors involved in a way that the mm-hmm. countries are governed. And it's like, we well, right. just, it'd be so nice if we could just cherry pick things <laughs> and hope that they fit.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, we can, we can just look at all of these systems and say, let's just take all the best bits.
0: It would be an interesting experiment. I don't think anybody's ever done it. <laughs> it's an interesting experiment. I think it'd be awesome if we could give that a go. I i mean, obviously, mm-hmm. it's so many things need to happen in order to make that viable. Right. But, being able to see what happens when you cherry pick these things and plonk them into a specific country that doesn't normally do these things and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. See, now that's what we should use mm-hmm. AI to do. Let's mm-hmm. simulate this. Let's see what happens.
1: <laughs> that's something I was fairly interested in doing, actually. When I maybe this is too soon to be talking about <laughs> when I thought I was going to be a data scientist, <laughs> I was particularly interested in a particular sub discipline of AI called reinforcement learning which is what is used to teach robots, for instance. And DeepMind did experiments where uh, they had like a red team and a blue team, I think it was, and they played hide and seek. It was delightful. And they had the team that was the hiding team, say the red team, they had little cubes and they could move these cubes and they could hide behind the cubes and the blue ones couldn't find them. And so then the blue ones would get, you know, if you lose, you get a penalty or whatever. And then the blue ones would learn to find, to go around the cubes. And then the red ones would start stacking the cubes and they're making a wall. And then eventually the blue ones learn to go over it and, and so on. And I was thinking that that would be an amazing way to figure out where public transit should be. If you give it the map of a city. And say, these are, this is where all the houses are. This is where all of the grocery stores and like everything except say the roads. I mean, I guess you'd be able to infer where the roads are, but give it absolutely no information about where you
0: want the transit to be and just see what it does. There is somebody I think you need to get in touch with. I've just spoken to her recently from Polywork. Her name is Helen McKenzie. And just to give you an idea, her social media handle is Helen makes maps and she is in data sciences and she Mm -hmm. likes to analyze these little things to find out where things are and why. And yeah, Mm -hmm. so definitely you can go both directions with that, figure out what you want to do, figure out where's Mm -hmm. the best place to do it, go backwards. But yeah, I reckon you need to look into what she's doing.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. That sounds, sounds fun.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. So from mathematics, slight deviation Mm -hmm. into data sciences. And then how did you get into technical writing? Because you can see sort of the progression there, but what was it about technical Mm -hmm. writing that made it your new thing?
1: Yeah. So until I guess December of 2021, I was going to be a data scientist. I had sort of been dragging my feet because it turned out that I really loved teaching and I had gotten married and I was in a privileged enough position where I could keep doing what I was doing, even though I was making almost no money. And then because of COVID, we'd gone remote and I loved teaching remotely. And also I contracted pneumonia at one point and my lungs were damaged a bit. And so I was particularly concerned about covid And it was announced in the fall of 2021 that the spring of 2022, that semester, that we would be going back to in-person teaching only. And we had previously never taught our math courses online. And now we were going back to never teaching our math courses online, which made no sense to me then. It makes no sense to me now. But that was the decision from somebody. And I didn't feel safe returning and I explained to my department head that I could not, couldn't return under, under those circumstances. And the response was basically, gosh, you know, that's really too bad. We don't want to see you leave, but also there's the door. We, we can't, we're not going to do anything about that. And so I reluctantly gave up the courses that I had already been assigned for that spring and decided, okay, well, I guess this is, this is my sign. I've just got to get on with this data science things so that I can continue to work remotely. And I finished off that last class barely holding it together. (laughs) And then the following week on Twitter, people started talking a lot about technical writing. And I sort of wondered what that was. And I looked it up and the Google technical writing course described it as the intersection of that a technical writer has skills in pedagogy, basically, and in coding. And I thought, oh, hey, that's me. <laughs> and I kept that thought to myself because I thought nobody wants to hear, oh, Laura's switching careers yet again. Here she goes. And so I just sort of sat on it for about a week. And then I sort of mentioned it to my husband. And he said, oh, yeah, that sounds perfect. You <laughs> I was like, you don't think it's, you know, me being flaky? And he said, no, I think that this is this is exactly, you know, this is clearly perfect yeah. for you. So, you know, why don't you do that? And there's a venture capitalist named Arlen Hamilton. She runs a firm called Backstage Capital. And one of her sort of catchphrases is, be yourself so the people who are looking for you can find you. And that is exactly what happened. So it was on about Christmas Eve that I made the decision to pivot again into technical writing. I rewrote my resume. And in the first couple of weeks of January, I ended up getting a lot of interest, a lot of interviews. And I got an offer on the 11th of February. Well, I had several offers, but I accepted an offer
0: on February 11th. And it was just that fast. Yes. And it's one of those things where if you didn't have the experience that you had, you wouldn't have found this mm-hmm. and this, this wouldn't have been perfect for you. You right. needed that exactly. combination of exploring computer science, of having that background in teaching. And all of these experiences that you've had have just led to this. And yeah, it just works. That's just what was great for you. <laughs> yeah. I had
1: been blogging my journey into data science, I had actually had a couple of publishers reach out about book deals, about writing, you know, how to pivot from math into data science, which I thought was kind of funny because I hadn't done it yet. <laughs> 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 I was like, Is it the case that the person who writes this book should have not completed this journey? That's kind of interesting. It
0: still works though, because it's where you wanted to be and you did the work to get to that point. Mm -hmm. It's just that at the point where you would have started doing it as a career, you found something that was much better suited. But it is a good way of saying, this is how you explore what you want. This is how you make that transition. Mm -hmm. And from data science, so many people doing data science as well are doing DevRel and doing all these kinds of technical writing because Mm -hmm. that's how we communicate the data science. Because the whole point Mm -hmm. is data science isn't just numbers. It's about how you explain those numbers to people in a way that is accessible and understandable to a broad audience. And that's what you do. So yeah, still valid.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I did, I did actually do a data science internship briefly. I, I sort of discovered that I was more motivated to contribute to Research in AI ethics or responsible AI than I was in producing the AI itself, except for that reinforcement learning to fix the public transit <laughs> that's still that's still niggling around. But then just things like I don't know if you've read Algorithms of Oppression by Dr. Sophia Noble, or if you've seen Coded Bias. So it's just it's so interesting to read and to learn about how algorithms affect our everyday lives. So the course that I was teaching in my last couple of semesters of teaching was a course called Mathematical Contributions to Modern Society, which should be super fun. And when I inherited, it it was kind of boring. And I (laughs) was trying to remind myself not to do unpaid labor, but I could not resist. And so I created a new unit on algorithms, because if we want to talk about Mathematical contributions to modern society. Algorithms. (laughs) (laughs) Especially because people frequently don't think of what this is under the hood is linear algebra all the way. That is all that is happening here over and over and over again. And people who are not trained in the humanities are making these decisions that affect humanity.
0: And that's kind of suboptimal. Yeah. I've always felt we really need to be incorporating ethics units into more of our programs. I think that's, we really need to be doing that. We can't just let people loose with technology and go, have at it. Right. Do whatever you yep. want to do. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. It's like, yeah, it is awesome. But you got to think about both sides. It shouldn't stop progress, but you need to think about it.
1: Right. Yeah. There's the Silicon Valley ethos of move fast and break things. But sometimes the things are literally humans. Yes. <laughs> right. you, do, you don't get to just break the
0: humans. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we need to be able to say, let's take a pause and think about impact and decide whether this is actually the way we want to go forward or whether if there's another way we can go forward.
1: <laughs> but it
0: is a little bit,
1: as in DevRel, you do get to consider how how your product will impact your users and potentially people beyond your users, your users' users in our case. And there have been lots of opportunities for me to draw on that because the product that we're working on can be applied to databases. And one of the reasons that our particular product is great is because it protects personally identifiable information, for instance. And that's that's a big thing
0: fair. (laughs) Given how many breaches we've had lately, I think we really do need to be conscientious about this. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. What data
1: are you gathering? Do you, must you gather the data that you're gathering? And once you've gathered it, how are you protecting it? And do you have to actually keep it? Or, you know, can it be processed locally instead of In the cloud, and all of these kinds of considerations. And so, all of these, as you were saying, all of these aspects of things that I was interested in and working on that sort of seemed almost disparate have come together in the developer relations role. It's amazing. So, Mm -hmm. what does a day in the life of a DevRel look like? Yeah, so I just recently became not a technical writer and instead a developer advocate. However, my day-to-day job is more or less still the same because we're a startup and so everybody wears lots of hats and so my Mm -hmm. hat has a different label on it, but it's still my hat. Earlier today, I worked on our documentation and so that's, you know, drawing a lot more on the pedagogical sort of foundations that I built up. And then last Friday, I was doing a, a live stream with somebody from the Python community because they also work on extensions and we're in the extensibility space and that kind of thing. And so the two sort of primary types of work that I do are live streams and documentation at the moment. What's going to happen when we roll out support for Python, because our product depends on WebAssembly. And WebAssembly is rolling out support for Python. It's very quick, but feels sort of slow for folks who have been waiting for an entire year and and so on. So that's very exciting. And so then I'll be taking on an even more public role as sort
0: of the public face of Python for our organization. That's very cool, and it's great because you get to do your virtual teaching and your docs, and
1: being exactly. able to talk about
0: topics like this, and really able to you know start talking to people as part of DevRel, the ethics of using all this wonderful technology to do what they're going to do. Exactly. So yeah, it's all coming together.
1: Yeah, it's so great. I pinch myself all the time, thinking you know how I've been so lucky to have ended up
0: in the exactly perfect place for me. Exactly. So yeah, you don't have to worry about the fact that you've switched all those things because as you said, it's a feature.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, even the Italian studies, one of my coworkers is Italian and sometimes he says things in Italian and then he translates and I said, I actually, I knew what you said. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, you'd never know when these skills that you pick
0: up are gonna mm-hmm. come in handy.
1: <laughs> my, my very first major was theater. And a lot of us in DevRel, I mean, almost all of the people in DevRel that I have actually asked were at one time a theatre kid. Of course. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people who are in SciComm and all those sorts of areas where part of their work is about communications and they've got some sort of theatre or panto background. It's like, yeah, it's just skills you develop and that's what makes it makes you good at what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I was on a speech team. We ended up going to, you know, the national tournaments and so on. And so all of these things just come together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, it just adds up to Mm -hmm. all the things that you need to be able to do your Mm -hmm. job the best that you can. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. So, yeah, this has been such an incredible conversation, Laura. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with me. And, you know, you can see with perspective now that your journey has been cultivated rather than ad hoc. Even if it felt that way at the time, yes. And for a lot of people, that is the case because they're not quite sure what they want to do. But this is a thing that fascinates them, and so they explore it. Mm-hmm. And in the end, that's exactly where they need to be.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I wish that for for everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. So, lastly, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do, or what advice should they ignore? I'm going to circle
1: back to Arlen Hamilton. Be yourself so the people who are looking for you can find you. And the advice you should ignore is the voice in you that tells you that you should do something different. Do something that isn't you. You know, it's the voice that says, you know, you, you should do this other thing that's boring to you because it's got better job security or something. And like, not to say that that's not something that you should do maybe for a bit while you're finding another outlet for what
0: you are into that does have job security. Because it's all experience anyway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you really do have to make those choices to do the thing you don't want to do for a little while in order to be able to do the thing that you do. It's just part of the path. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But you don't have to, I guess for a lot of people, I think their job is just their job. And it's not something that they love to do. It's just something that they do. And if that feels good to you, because that makes it also easier to leave work at work, which is hard for me. It's not to say that that's like an invalid way of doing things. You know, if that works for you, then that's great. But it would not work for me to do a job that is just, I just do this job and then I I have to love it
0: or... It's not going to work out. Exactly. And it's one of those things that once you get older, you realize that, yes, it's okay to do work that you're not completely passionate about mm-hmm. if it allows you to do something that you are. Sure. And it's not saying that you're not committed because a lot of mm-hmm. people are worried that if that's not the case, it's because they lack commitment. Mm-hmm. It's that, yes, you're committed to what you do. If you're not committed to the what you do, find a different thing. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to be all in on it. In your heart, right? as long as it fulfills you and it creates balance for you in Mm -hmm. other ways, Mm -hmm. that's still valid as a choice. Sure.
1: I think it's especially common in tech for there's a narrative like if you don't love code, like if you don't code in your free time, then you shouldn't be here. And I think that that's, you know, that can get in the sea. Yeah. (laughs) It should be especially for something you're going to spend, you know, 40 hours a week or more doing, optimally, it should be something that you really enjoy.
0: Yeah, it should, because it's a long time to be spending on doing a thing that you don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And the, you need to dev in your free time thing. I remember when that was huge. Every job ad said that we only want to hire people who live and breathe code. It's like, I think you actually want people who are a bit more well-rounded rather than just only living and breathing code, because if you're interested in other things, it allows you to be better at what you do. Right.
1: Yeah. I saw something recently somebody said, and I wish I could remember who, don't spend all of your time becoming a senior engineer and remaining a junior human.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. It is. You need perspective. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, that's amazing advice. And Yeah, thank you again so much, Laura, for having this incredible conversation with me. I've really enjoyed all of your insights and your reflections in your life and what you do now. So if people would like to know more about what you do, where can they go?
1: I have a personal website, lauralangdon.io, and I am on the HackyDerm server on Mastodon, just lauralangdon at hackyderm.io. Oh, and Twitch
0: which is also my name. (laughs) Amazing. And I will put all of those links in the show notes as well. So again, thank you so much for this. This has been absolutely wonderful having you on this evening. Thank you so much likewise. Yeah. And I hope you have an amazing evening. Thank you. And I believe for you, it would be morning. So an amazing rest of your day. Yes, I will. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to this show, leave us a rating, and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon under Steam Powered Show, the link for which also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.